Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Coming up on the Mark Divine Show. People need to understand that right until the last moment you're on the planet, you can strengthen or weaken your brain. It's your choice right? We have neuroplasticity or brain plasticity until our last moment on the planet. We have it very intensively when we're in our teens to 24. That's an incredible time, just like zero to five, incredible time in neuroplasticity, but we have it right till the end. So it's always a choice. You can always choose what you want to do for your physical health and your brain health. Hi, I'm Mark Devine, and this is The Mark Devine Show. On this show, I explore what it means to be fearless through the lens of the world's most inspirational, compassionate, and resilient leaders. My guests include incredible people from all walks of life, martial arts grandmasters, military special ops leaders, high-powered CEOs, and PhDs doing incredible work in neuroscience. Today, we're going to be talking about how bullying affects the brain in a scientific way. Specifically, my guest says it's time to abolish the idea that being tough on young people improves performance. Jennifer Fraser shares not only how to survive bullying, but how to push back against entrenched roles, the entrenched role it plays in society. Jennifer is a best-selling author, award-winning educator with a PhD in comparative literature. Her online courses and workshops provide dynamic lessons on the impact neuroscience has on personal development and cultural change. Her book, Teaching Bullies, Zero Tolerance on the Court in the Classroom, explores what happens when the bully is a teacher or a coach. And her latest book, The Bully Brain, which we'll talk about today, Heal Your Scars and Restore Your Health, delves into how bullying affects the brain and how you can heal the brain from that bullying. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Super nice to meet you, Jennifer. I really appreciate your work. And I'm curious, like, why? Why? Were you a victim of bullying? or Why did you get interested in this? Well, it's a very good question. So what happened was I was working at a university prep school. I got a call from a parent saying that her son is texting her and he's saying he can't take it anymore. It's too much. They're calling us effing pathetic and effing embarrassments and effing pussies and etc. We'd heard earlier in the year this same situation, but the expression was effing retards. So I am the daughter of a lawyer. I am the granddaughter of a judge. My uncle's a lawyer. My mom is in, you know, behind the scenes politics. I do everything by the book. I used to be called goody two shoes as a kid because I was that obnoxious. So I do everything by the book and I go to the the secretary of the board of the school. I go to the headmaster. I meet with the headmaster. Yes, we're going to do all of these proper protocols. Well, of course they don't. And the reason they don't is because it's not students bullying students. It's teachers. No way. It was teachers saying all of that. It covers down on the, on these bad players, just like we've seen in some of the sex scandals and et cetera. It's amazing to watch the, the sport crisis unfold because we're a society that seems to hold children to higher and higher, more stringent standards when it comes to conduct. And all we ever do with adults who display far worse behaviors, much more destructive behaviors, they're in positions of trust, authority, and power. And what do we do? We cover up what they've done and we enable them to keep doing it. So we have this kind of psychotic society unfolding, and I think everyone's feeling it. I understand that speaking up about this would end up being hard on the school, hard on my colleagues, etc. But everybody has their line. And my line that got crossed was, my son was one of their victims. 
I'm a researcher by trade. I'm an author. I'm an academic. So when I, they started to tell me things like, oh, it's just old school coaching. And then when the government agencies empowered to protect children started saying things like, well, the students shouldn't have listened to the teacher's obscenities. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. What? And, and the other thing that the Commissioner for Teacher Regulation said was the students are too sensitive. I was like, what? It's all their fault. Yeah. <laughs> it was like being in Orwell's 1984. I was like, okay. So the way I sort things out for myself and try and get a grip on reality is research. So I was like, okay, that's what you guys are all saying. You're the powerful people. What does the research say? And it couldn't be more diametrically opposed. So they're trying to cover up and enable and, and victimize the students who reported. By the time they, there was at least 13, 14 students reporting that they, they wanted the abuse to stop, it was basically the classic textbook scenario of fear, humiliation, and favoritism. And so, you know, it's the, that's how bullies operate. It's well-documented. That's what they were doing. And the kids were like, no, we just want to play our sport. We actually want to compete. We want to win. Sorry, Jennifer, was this all just in athletic arenas or was it also happening in the classroom and other places? Well, originally at the school, I repeatedly reported along with other colleagues and parents and students that there was a theater teacher, the head of the theater department was incredibly abusive. And they just totally covered that up and enabled it until the sports situation happened. And when I wrote my letter to them and said, you know, if you don't address this, I'm resigning. The chairman of the board phoned me right up and said, you know, oh, sorry, I should have just backtracked. I said, I've watched what you're doing with theater. And so I don't think you're going to actually address this. I think you're just going to do what you do with the theater abuse. And so, you know, I picked up the phone and it's the chair of the board. And he said, theater's being taken care of. That teacher retired early, like really early. And that's how they do it in these independent schools. Right. Like, no acknowledgement, no, no repercussions. No, which is from a brain point of view, that's really unhealthy. Because basically you're telling the students that they're not being heard, that they weren't hurt, that they can now walk away with all the neurological scars that got in their brains from this abusive individual. And the school is bending over backwards to ensure that the abusive individual is protected. It's very dangerous what we're doing with young people's brains right now. And, you know, the statistic that best conveys this, and it's a tough one, but it's just come out from 2000 to 2018, youth suicide, that's 10 year olds to 24 year olds, has increased 57%. Yeah, I've heard that. That's insane. And it's going up since the pandemic for obviously other reasons, but uh, it's a crisis. When most people think, you were abused, now the abuse is gone, so everything's okay now. Not so, right? What's the effect of this abuse and how long does it take for, you know, the effects to really kind of root themselves in traumatic brain symptoms? What I learned in the research is we have a tendency in society, just as you said, Mark, we think that the body is now protected. The young person no longer is exposed to the abuser. Therefore, the young person is fine. Yeah, give them a couple therapy sessions and they'll be okay. Yeah, we look at their bodies and we look at them and they're, they're successful. They're doing well in their grades. Maybe, maybe they're struggling a bit, but basically they look fine. They look healthy. Well, the research on these healthy, young-looking people shows that their brains are in serious trouble. And this is where, as a society, I'm excited and hopeful that we're kind of at a tipping point where we're going to make a shift. And this is really what I wanted to achieve with my book. I want my reader to start thinking a lot more about their brain, seeing their brain, shining a spotlight on their brain, understanding how their brain works. Because what's actually happened is that young person who was abused 
is got all kinds of damage, anatomical damage to their brain, you know, potentially neurological scars. They, they might have all different distortions. Brains are very unique. So they, they absorb and they suffer the abuse differently. But the bottom line is it's invisible to us. So we ignore it. Even our doctors ignore it. Even some of our mental health professionals, they're not looking at the brain. And the brain will tell you very quickly on a non-invasive brain scan where some of the key problems lie. That's fascinating. And so let's keep the school example. Let's say I had a coach who was abusive and I was with that coach for four or six years or whatever, or different coaches. What's happening in my brain? And is it the same for all kids or are there different manifestations of trauma? There's different manifestations. Absolutely. Because there's many different complex factors. You know, as a mental health professional, we'll quickly identify and understand I mean, how you react to an educator who's abusing you is going to depend on your relationship to your parents. It'll hinge on your relationship to other teachers. It'll depend on your genetic makeup and, and the resilience of your own neural network. Well, if you've got trauma in other areas of your life, it's just going to compound. It's right? going to compound for sure. So, I mean, if you imagine a child in that situation, one of the things that's really worrisome in the long term is they end up normalizing the abuse. So oftentimes an educator who's abusing, or even a doctor, like if you look at Dr. Larry Nassar, he would co-opt the parent. He would normalize his abuse by doing it in front of a parent in the room so that the kid would think, oh, my parent is not reacting to this. This authority, this medical expert knows what he's doing. I, I must just trust that this, even though it feels like a violation, isn't. So you can see how the brain is starting to get, is starting to normalize incredibly abnormal, unhealthy behaviors. Also, if you're, let's say you're one of the, in the classic bullying dynamic, there will be targets and then there will be the favored ones. The favored ones are all designed to make the targets, make it seem like it's their fault. Not everyone's being slammed with this kind of behavior. Therefore, the ones that are must deserve it. The fault lies with them. They need to be treated this way. And then the favored ones are the ones also who will jump to the defense of the abusive individual. We see this again and again. So imagine that. What's happening to the student that's the favored student, they're losing empathy. With every single time that the abusive individual does their abuse, they're shutting down the empathy neural networks that should be saying, this is awful. This student's being publicly shamed. This student's being grabbed and yelled at in the face. This student's being put down and humiliated. And instead of the normal reaction, their brain is stifling that natural empathy network. Very, very destructive. If you look at jobs and especially leadership jobs and professional jobs, they're always asking for someone with empathy, with social, emotional skills, with empathy, because it is what's successful in the workplace. So, you know, those unfortunate young people are having their neural networks really damaged. Now, what's fascinating to me is when they look at very extreme examples of people that have suffered. So, for example, there's a, a UK study on prisoners who are murderers. And when they looked at their brains on brain scans, they found that their amygdala, so that's the part of the brain that's sort of the alarm center or the threat detection center. It does many, many things. The brain always is working together, but for the sake of this study and for us talking, let's isolate that part of the brain. And they found that the amygdala of a murderer is very enlarged. Well, it makes a lot of sense. You don't become a murderer by growing up in a healthy, happy, safe home and neighborhood. So because it's hyper, become hypersensitive or overtrained to detect threats and to be on guard? Is that why? Exactly. And so imagine if you are someone who has an enlarged amygdala, you've become hypervigilant. So if you're a kid that goes to a coaching session or into a classroom 
And every day or every second day, six days a week, you don't know where the threat's going to next come from. Instead of pouring all your resources, your incredible brain resources into creativity and innovation and problem solving and learning, you are pouring all your energy into the part of the brain that's going to keep you safe. Because the brain's number one job is to keep you alive. So hypervigilant people, they're always on the lookout. They're like a watchtower. You just described all my SEAL teammates, by the way. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. Many of whom had traumatic childhoods, which made us very good at what we did, by the way. And then that is exactly the case. And you know, what's exciting to me is you take those teammates and you take the fact that they had these incredibly difficult childhoods, really harmful childhoods. They channeled in this as something powerful and amazing and needed. But now they come out of it and they're left with the hurt brain. And what I found in the research is you can take a brain like that and you can absolutely repair it. You can take that person and they don't need to suffer anymore. Once, you know, they, they're in civilian life now, they want to do more. They want to have healthy, great relationships and not be on perpetual high alert. Well, that can absolutely be done. How do we know if we've been bullied or we, I guess someone just kind of knows, right? If you've been bullied, you kind of like, do your clients know they've been bullied or do some of them still in deep denial about it and be like, oh no, or I, I overcame that. It wasn't, it's not a big deal. I'm smart. I overcame it. You know, we like to think that we can think our way through anything, right? It's kind of the powerhouse question. And it's something that I only came to terms with through starting to research and write and have lived experience in this world. So what happened was, here's my son. He's this elite athlete and he's being totally destroyed by these two teachers. I watched the mental health collapse firsthand. And, you know, when you watch it and it's someone that you love more than life itself, your kid you become really aware just how traumatizing it is. And he was smart enough. I mean, it was a terrible sacrifice. It was like a deal with the devil. He gave up playing basketball, which was his absolute joy and passion. And it, he was so talented. He walked away because the broken system put the two teachers back. Six boys didn't play that year. That was my son's final year. He knew well enough. He's like, I cannot afford to be exposed to this toxicity. And also the headmaster at the school with the assistance of the chaplain and the board, they were all covering up and they were re-victimizing the kids. He broke confidentiality. You know, it was just a horrendous situation. So I'm watching this and, you know, my son was physically and emotionally abused and it was all about humiliation. And it started to have this sort of effect on me. It started to trigger me. I was like, what's wrong with me? And so I resigned in protest from that school. As soon as the second my son graduated, I uh, resigned. And I got a job at another private school. And I can only teach at private schools because I have a PhD, not a teaching license through the public system. So I went to another private school that hired me and I started teaching. And by that point, I mean, I was exhausted. And then within two years of being at that school, the whole story was blown out in national news. It was on an investigative journalist TV program, local news. And I just was done. Like I was really just emotionally drained as a person. And my focus was on getting our son better. So in my second year at that school, there was an issue with a teacher who was sort of like a really cult following type teacher, just, you know, beloved and slated to be the next leader of the school and started the soccer academy. Well, out of the blue, we're all told as faculty that he's been called home from the girls' soccer tour in Germany and he's never allowed on campus again. Oh. It's like, uh oh. Mm -hmm. So that was all covered up and brushed under the carpet and swept away. And I, just put my head down. I honestly just couldn't deal with it. I didn't care. 
but it started to trigger me more. I was like, what's wrong with me? So then in my third year at the school, 17-year-old girl that I taught the year before came up to me and she said, uh, can I talk to you? And you know, with kids, when you're a teacher, you can just like a mom, I was like, okay, this does not sound good. This is October 1st, 2017. We go outside, stand outside the library. And she says to me, I'm being sexually harassed by a teacher. I'm like, oh my God. And I wanted to say, well, I'm not the right person. Don't tell me I can't handle this anymore. I just, I know that the system's completely broken. I'm not going to send you anywhere near a commissioner for teacher regulation. I know they're corrupt. I've handed all the material to person's office. I mean, these are the things I want to say. But of course I say, well, I'm going to help you and we need to do the right thing. I have legal duty to report. We need to deal with this. Now, she was an international student from China and she was living with her father in her final year. But prior to that, she'd been a homestay student living with the principal of the school and his wife. And the principal of the school was my champion. Hired me as a whistleblower. I laid it all out on the table that, you know, it was going to go to national news and I knew that was happening. And, you know, these schools are very circle the wagons, very connected, protect one another. And I'm a pretty, you know, the last thing you want is a vocal teacher, one who's not going to look away when bad stuff's happening. So he's in his 60s and adult children and just a lovely guy. And so she had stayed with him and his wife for several years. So I said to her, look, how about you and me go and talk to Mr. Calderwood and we will sort this out and deal with this and get it straightened out. And she looks at me and she says, it is Mr. Calderwood. And you know, what I'm telling you here right now in British Columbia, Canada, where I live, the schools that are up and running is all completely covered up. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. The fact that we're talking about this means this is happening all over the place. Yeah, and in the research, I can assure you it is. It, child abuse has, was recognized as being absolutely rampant in the 1980s. That was Roland Summit's work and Alice Miller. In the 1990s, late 1990s, two American doctors, they identified and made direct correlation. It's considered one of the most important medical breakthroughs, direct correlation between child abuse of all forms, emotional, physical, and sexual, emotional neglect, and physical neglect. And then they also look at divorce, alcoholism, substance abuse, a parent with mental illness, and domestic abuse. Those were the 10 things. Five of them are, are child abuse. And they make a direct correlation between child abuse and midlife chronic illness. Going back to your question, once the abusers removed, like this individual was, suspended instantly from the school and the police investigation began, once they're removed, therefore the child must be safe. That's our thinking. And that thinking is outdated. It's not grounded in science. It's ignorant. So what happens with this girl is I do everything to support her. Off she goes to university a year later. She's a brilliant kid. She scored the highest on the international baccalaureate exams, wants to be a doctor. She starts synchronized swimming at UBC. She's off the island. Like I just figure safe, safe, safe. And it feels deeply familiar to me. I'm like, she's away from high school. It's over now. Who cares that everything is, you know, the broken system here? It's over. She's at university. She's going to flourish. So she keeps sending me emails and they're not good. They're about mental health, about how She's so full of self-loathing. She's ruined his life. She feels that she wants to hurt herself. She's really looking for drugs. She, you know, she's very, very suicidal. 
And I'm deeply concerned. I call the police who was involved with special victims. I'm like, should I even be writing her? I'm just a teacher. I don't know how to handle this kind of trauma. And she says, you're answering perfectly. Just keep supporting her. That means everything. So 2017, a student writes me who's close friends with her and um, just says, our Elisa has taken her life. Oh, no. And so that for me was the final like breakdown. Now these kinds of strange feelings, memories, flashbacks, traumas, like triggers that I'm having in my own life. Like I'm starting to cry for no reason. I took three days stress leave from the school. I was like, what is wrong with me? Becomes full blown panic attacks. And I have to bite the bullet and unpack the fact that, and I knew it. It's not like it was unconscious. It's just that I kept it in a box over here and I never looked at it. I never opened the box and I knew it was there. But I was sexually, physically, and emotionally abused in an outdoor education program with three teachers from 13 when the grooming began until I left at 17. So for four years, and there were many victims, and they took these guys to court in 2000. I knew that was happening. I was called by national news. Someone must have given them my name. And I said, like, honestly, garbage. All I said was like vague things like, oh, I don't even know what I said. All I remember is being on the telephone and feeling like I was in a haze. I wasn't really there. And that's what happens when you're an abuse victim. You become almost like a ghost in your own life and you don't know why. You just disassociate from that whole part of your personality. You absolutely dissociate. So what's been fabulous for me and what's been super powerful about this book is it's a book I wrote to look at. Okay, so this happened to me. It's happening to lots of kids. What can we do to get better? And really what I found in the neuroscience is there are so many things and they're, as you say, they're exactly what you're doing. There's so much research to back up that once you identify, yeah, my brain is being hurt. Now I need to repair it so that you commit to it. So I spent time in the book really showing that, like what has happened to your brain? It's not in your head. It really is there. It's brain architecture issues. Once you see that, then my whole goal is to do the exercise and the meditation and all of that type of work, being in nature is a huge one, as you know, but also getting people to use mindfulness as a tool, like an athlete would visualize, to visualize their brain and to start talking and working with their brain, telling their brain to stand down, basically. Like your mind is saying to your brain, you're the power, but I'm in the driver's seat and I can tell you we're safe. You can calm down. That's what you're telling your brain when you do deep breathing. You're telling your brain there isn't a predator around it can calm down. So in your work, especially with, well, it's not just younger because I mean, you're right about my age. So your healing started when you finally had that kind of wake up call like, holy shit, this isn't just about these victims. This is about me. So you're never too late to do healing, whether you're 20 or, or 55. But in your work, is there a best to start here place? Because like, let me just give you a reference point. In our work, what we find is if people come to us and they're like really out of shape physically, it's very hard to work with their mind. It's hard to go in and do kind of the emotional, what we call the emotional mountain work if they're physically out of balance. So we say, okay, let's just start with some fundamentals here. You know, get your body back into balance. You know, so we're going to sleep better. We're going to eat better. We're going to, you know, we start moving the body. And our view is similar to yours, like move in nature, do some somatic movement, breathe and move, and then exercise is something different. You know, we'll train our body to be functionally strong. And those things. And then that basically starts to bring a little homeostasis back. And then we can start to work with things like mindfulness and visualization. And, and then, of course, 
what I love is you're saying also the objective interventions of like, take a look at your brain with an EEG, QEG, or, you know, some other map, like Dr. Eamon has his little thing, spectrogram or something, and see what's going on. And then, and then we can be a little bit more precise, like a sniper with our interventions. At any rate, what's your, is it do everything all at once or do you have kind of like a prescription, a progressive path to healing? Well, in the book, what I do is I make people understand and look at the really tough research, the painful research on what abuse does to the brain. And then every single chapter has a, okay, that's the bad news. Let's talk about activation. So just like in your program, I do the same thing where I say, you have to start with basic principles of brain health, organic brain health. And it's the same thing as with the body. You know, you can't go to the doctor and say, I need you to get me in shape. You go to the doctor when you need really like important intervention, very specific. Something's gone off the rails already. Same thing with the mental health professional. But if you bring to your mental health professional an organic brain health basis, you're going to do so much better. So one of the things I try to get people to understand is you learn these principles of brain health and they are just like the body, of course, because people, I mean, in our society, we don't think about the brain as part of the body. I mean, if you even look at the law, like if you punched me in the face, the law would, you know, that would be a criminal charge. If you humiliated me, the law would be like, well, that's not our department. The body looks fine to me. She must be okay. She'll get over it. She's got hurt feelings, you know? But in actual fact, you've just damaged my brain. And if you repeat that humiliation over and over, you're doing more and more harm to my brain. You're ramping up my toxic stress levels, which is pumping up cortisol. Cortisol is a corrosive stress hormone. It's meant to be healthy, and it is in healthy situations, like you need to run away from a predator or an assailant. And in small quantities. In small quantities, in a big rush. But our kids and us as adults, we're living in a world where our brains are constantly being bathed in this corrosive stress hormone. It's really, really awful. And our body is too. It affects your blood vessels. This is why, you know, seeing chronic health issues is hardly a surprise. It's just that for us, it's all sort of invisible. So in my program, I want people to understand that the brain is just like a muscle. You need to start by getting the muscle healthy, just like the heart. You need to start working slowly with the heart. You can't go from sitting on the couch, watching TV to running five miles. That would be really unhealthy. You have to take small incremental steps. And just as you would get your muscles slowly but surely stronger and stronger and motivate you to do that, you are doing the exact same activation energy with your brain. You're getting the neural networks that you desire, the ones for empathy, the ones for critical thinking, the ones for caring for other people, all these things, you know, problem solving, intelligence, understanding, all of that is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And you have to do it in steps. And I'm just the same as you with, you need a baseline. You've got to choose health, basically. And, you know, we feed our brains really bad food. You know, anyone who's eating fast food is feeding their brain. And our kids, no kid should ever be eating fast food. It's the worst thing for your brain. But, you know, our society doesn't talk enough about the brain. So this is why in my book, Bully Brain, I'm trying to be like a powerful bullying tool is to ignore something. We're all ignoring our own brains. <laughs> We're bullying our own brains. <laughs> it's true. That's interesting. People need to understand that right until the last moment you're on the planet, you can strengthen or weaken your brain. It's your choice, right? We have neuroplasticity or brain plasticity until our last moment on the planet. We have it very intensively when we're in our teens to 24. That's an incredible time, just like zero to five. Incredible time in neuroplasticity, but we have it right till the end. 
So it's always a choice. You can always choose what you want to do for your physical health and your brain health. And as you say, they're entwined. Dr. Michael Merzenich, who is my just absolute, he took this project under his wing, even though he's one of the most sought after, most important, most awarded neuroscientists alive today. And he's an American, amazing guy in San Francisco. He was telling me that, you know, there they are in the lab and they're doing all this work on brain research and they develop this incredible program and it's really important for brain training. And it can help elderly people not get sort of a flaccid, you know, falling apart brain. We keep our bodies alive until many, many, you know, 80s and 90s, but we let our brains go. We don't keep exercising them in the correct neuroscientific trained way to keep them healthy. So there they are working on Alzheimer's and all this research and the brain training, and they get a telephone call. And it's Alex Guerrero, who is Tom Brady, the quarterback's trainer. And he's just like, hey, just wanted to let you guys know, you guys do know that Tom uses your brain training every day. And they were like, uh, no. So they all got on a plane, the neuroscientists, and they went over to watch him and see him do his training and find out what this was all about. So Tom Brady is the first professional athlete that's gone public and shared his big competitive edge, which is that he trains his brain as much as he trains his body. Oh, by the way, it's a good idea for a contact sport athlete to be training their brain and doing lots of healing of their brain, whether it's football, soccer, or a Navy SEAL. Exactly. Because of the microtrauma. And also actual, you know, traumatic brain injury from all kinds of things, not just the PTSD or PTS. And the brain training program, the extensive research on it by all kinds of independent, like Johns Hopkins and UCLA and those types of people, they show that even traumatic brain injury can undergo incredible repair. Is that training program similar to like a Lumosity type thing where you're doing like agility drills with your brain and visualization and solving problems and speed drills or how? how yeah, that- it's online gamified. The only difference would be that Brain HQ, which is Michael Merzenich's program, it's got the research behind it. So for example, you think of a kid playing a video game, they get really, really good at the video game, but it doesn't translate into real life. Same thing with brain training programs that are out there. The difference with Brain HQ is it translates into real life. So Tom Brady playing football is having the benefits of the type of training designed by the neuroscientist that he does with Brain HQ. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. So you got to get the body brain healthy through exercise, nutrition, hydration, sleep. You got to get the mind healthy through self-awareness that bullying is bad. Bullying equals bad and and is going to really hurt you at some point and it's holding you back. So that looks a lot like therapy and coaching, life coaching, or, you know, just self-awareness and healing, you know, from the codependency and the other psychological dysfunctions that accrue from that, you know, because those are pretty significant and they keep you trapped. And then we step it up and we say, okay, now we train our brain. We train our brain through these tools, such as you're talking about with brain HQ and visualization and what else can we do to train our brain? Well, you know, what I found through my own journey, which I think is one of the most important discoveries, is we know people who know that getting physically fit is going to make them healthier and happier, and they don't do it. So my biggest struggle in the book was I learned all this academic material, which is what I do. I did a deep dive into the neuroscience and the medicine and the research. So I knew everything. But after my student committed suicide, I could not bring myself to do anything. 
I sat on the couch and I honestly was immobilized. It's called depression. It's called depression. And it was pretty terrible. And what I found was I couldn't stop my legs from shaking, which is what happened to me when I was a kid. When I was being abused by those teachers, I had such extreme anxiety that my body was quivering. Now, that should remind you of an animal. That's what animals do when they're terrified. If a dog is terrified, it will start to shake. And so, of course, me being the absolute nerd that I am, I went to try and find the research on it, and I found it. And what I found was it's called panic. And when you're in a state of panic, basically your brain, it thinks it's the end. And this is the most important piece, I think, of the whole book. Because what I realized is when you're that much full of fear, you align with the abuser. You identify with the aggressor. Like the Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) Stockholm Syndrome. And that's exactly what I'd done with the teachers. I didn't open the box because as soon as you open the box, you have a personal responsibility to yourself to say, I have been damaged. And you have a personal responsibility to say, I must report this to protect others. If you don't open the box, you can align with the aggressor because that's so much safer for the brain. Yeah, it, it almost feels easier. And, and you get into this codependent, well, I, it's not my responsibility to ruin their lives by adding them. You know, someone else can do that because that might ruin my life because then they're going to deny it. And then I've got to, you know, I can see how that psychologically could be really challenging. And the truth of it is you're afraid of them. I had to recognize and I'm a pretty like, don't mess with me. I stand tall. I stand strong. But the truth of it was, I was just on the inside, in my brain, an absolutely terrorized individual. And I was afraid for my son, and I was afraid for myself. And so what I had to do was, I had to face how afraid I was, the way I did it. And this is a Dan Siegel thing. I'm sure you've read his mindfulness books and work. You have to name it to tame it. I took that one step further, and I started speaking the names of my abusers. I went and read all the news clippings. I read all the court documents. I read all the Ministry of Education and how hard they tried to cover it up, just like they do today, 40 years later. It's like, you know, I just faced it and I say their names, my three abusers, the three teachers, as often as I feel. I put them in my book. I just say their names. What are their names? (laughs) (laughs) Their names are Dean Hull, Stan Caligari, and Tom Ellison. Tom Ellison was charged and convicted. Dean Hull admitted in court to sleeping or having sex repeatedly with a teenage girl who was my contemporary and uh, wasn't charged even. And Stan Caligari was not charged. They'd also be in jail. Basically, they're dangerous individuals. If you don't ever get held accountable as an abusive individual, you can never heal. You never can get better. It's actually a curse. And if you want to talk about damaged brains, we should be so worried about any child that's bullying That kid does not need punishment or discipline or some sort of stern talking to. They're not a bad child. They need intervention and healing. That is the behavior of a very traumatized child. And all they're doing is reinforcing the trauma by they're just obviously in fight mode. So they're fighting to survive. They think they're under threat. And obviously they are under threat in their lives or they would not be doing that. So true. And if a bully doesn't get healed, he'll always be a bully. I have someone in mind when I say that, that I happen to know you very well. You could give him my book and see if it shakes him out of it. <laughs> yeah. If you, don't, if you don't heal from that, it shows up in different ways throughout your life as the bully, right? Not necessarily as the victim. I mean, as the bully. And the victim, disease or the imbalance will show up as disease or as psychological trauma or, you know, to the unfortunate victim of suicide, like you said. You know, it's intergenerational. You just pass it on. 
it goes back to a question that you asked at the beginning. And it's this idea, and this is what really worries me about society right now, because the brain will normalize everything. It creates its own reality. So, you know, we tend to think that the brain is reacting to things. So if you hurt my feelings, I react by my eyes fill with tears, but that's actually not true. What's happening in the brain is you're about to hurt my feelings or you hurt my feelings. My brain looks at that and it goes, hmm, have we seen this before? And it really looks fast, like lightning speed at my experience. And it goes through the filing cabinet. It's like, oh, when someone says a mean thing, it hurts you. I think the proper emotion concept for this moment, let's pull out the file folder for her. Yeah, fill your eyes with tears. Perfect. Did it. So it's creating its reality. Now, as soon as you know that, you can take a mindfulness stance to this and create a little bit of space between stimulus and response. Be amused. You can't take love away from me. I'll never stop loving you. I chose the path of love. That's what I'm like people in my world. And so I chose the emotion concept for you make me laugh. And by the way, you're touching upon the most powerful training tool of all, and that's forgiveness. And humor. Humor is up there too, but forgiveness first. I have a hard time with forgiveness. I don't know why I can't do it. If forgiveness is hard. Like for me, I, I didn't play the victim, but for a long time, I was just like kind of pissed. And I went to this program called the Hoffman Process. It's a week of just intense therapy and visualization. It's a process, right? These are long, intense visualizations that last for hours. Right? And I saw things that I've never seen before, that I have no business knowing, but I saw things. I saw how they were, how they were raised. And man, it just was an immediate release. I was like, oh. No, the way you say it makes me, you know, I just want to start visualizing my <laughs> abusive <laughs> teachers. <laughs> That'll be in your next book. <laughs> when, when you complete that step, you'll write the next you book. No, <laughs> I actually have written the next book, and it's going to be one that I hope really interests you in particular, because I compared two things. What I call it is Cloud of False Echoes. And then the subtitle is Trust the Truth and Resist Madness. And I feel like it's a timely book because we are suffering right now in an era where there's a war on truth. I want to write in defense of the truth and how it's so important. So I compare and contrast, I juxtapose the emails of my student, which is, is a document or a it's evidence of a brain that is slowly but surely being turned mad. It's, she's becoming completely mentally ill, and it's documented in these emails because of the system and what they do to her and her brain. So I have that. And then I juxtapose it with, I was asked as a researcher to look at these, these writings by a World War II fighter pilot. It's actually a Canadian fighter pilot who bombed the bridge on the River Kwai. I look at his clarity of mind. He's in this massively traumatizing situation, going out from India and, and traveling to Japan repeatedly in these planes and dropping bombs and what it means to be dropping bombs on people and all these sorts of things. And it, his life is at risk every single time they get in that plane. And yet his clarity of mind is the most brilliant contrast to my student's madness. And he comes home and she doesn't. I feel like it's a really powerful way to understand that we might have our opinions, we might have our political beliefs, we might have any of these differences and ideas about how to go forward and what's important and best, but we have to respect the truth. That's right. And the truth is your truth. And so to get to the ultimate truth inside of you, you got to overcome the traumas that obscure the truth from you, both physiologically and, yeah, the cloud of false echoes. I love that. I can't wait to see that book and read and have a conversation about it. 
You've been just such a delightful guest, Jennifer. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your work and conversation and your open-hearted way and humble way that you, you're able to talk about even your experience with your son and, and your own and this tragic incident with this Chinese lady. Thank you for having me. And your book, Bully Braid, it's a recent publication, so it's, it's out in the It's out in the market. It just came out in April in the U.S., so it's still in a hardcover edition. You can get it audio, obviously, in Kindle, but yeah, that's why it's sort of hardcover. I'm just hopeful that it brings healing. And, you know, I'm thinking something that you said that's so important, too, about freedom and about forgiveness is when you take that path, you can also forgive yourself when you let yourself down, when you're less than perfect, when you're hurtful to others. Even people you love so much, we all make those mistakes. We all do things wrong. And if you forgive others, then you can hold some of that self-compassion for yourself. I agree with you. It's very important work in an age that's slightly mad. <laughs> so we'll continue to do that. This is awesome and um, so important. We'll just continue uh, what we're doing and helping to educate people on the importance of healthy body, mind, brain, and um, being the change that we want to see in the world. And we can do that at scale. Absolutely. Thank you so much for giving me this incredible opportunity to connect with you and, and learn. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Where can people connect with you? Yeah, my website is Bullied Brain, same as the title of the book. There's lots of free resources like articles and interviews, and I write for Psychology Today and anything. If people want to learn more about these sorts of issues and, and what the neuroscience is saying, there's tons of stuff on the website. And it also tells you where you can get the book. All right. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. That was an incredible episode with Dr. Jennifer Fraser, incredibly humble and open conversation about the impact of bullying on the brain and how to heal from bullying. You can learn more about her at bulliedbrain.com or from her book, The Bullied Brain, which we talked about. Show notes and transcripts are up on our site, markdevine.com. Video will be up at YouTube at markdevine.com slash YouTube. And you can reach out on Twitter at markdevine and on Instagram and Facebook at realmarkdevine. Always hit me up on my LinkedIn channel and um, available to respond to any questions there. Quick plug for the new newsletter, Divine Inspiration, which comes out every Tuesday with a synopsis of our podcast, my blog, and other top of mind inspirational people, habits, or products that will inspire you to lead a live a life with compassion and courage. Go to markdevine.com to subscribe if you're not on the list and refer it to your friends. It's a great newsletter. Special shout out to my amazing team of Jeff Haskell, Jason Sanderson, Q Williams, Jeff Torres, who helped produce this podcast and bring incredible guests like Jennifer to you every week. Ratings and reviews are very helpful. So if you haven't done so, consider rating and giving us a review wherever you listen. It helps bring credibility and other people to the show. Thanks so much for being part of the Mark Divine Show and for sharing it and for doing the work and for being part of the solution to be the change we want to see in the world at scale. Until next time, this is your host, Mark Divine. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.